particular session, we're going to be talking about a multifaceted approach to Ebola. Um, I've subtitled this Holistic Solutions for a Whole Nation Problem because um, if you have had any dealings with Ebola so far um, or have read much um, about Ebola, you'll realize that Ebola is not really a virus uh, problem. It's really, well, it's a complete disaster is what it is. Um, there, there isn't anything that Ebola hasn't touched in the regions where it's affecting right now. And so what we're going to talk about today is more um, what are some of the other things that are happening as a result of Ebola that um, people need to be getting involved with now, um, things that can be mitigated in the future if we act quickly. Um, you know, this, this whole Ebola thing, um, I think we can all safely agree on the fact that we have been, everybody, we, I'm talking the globe, right, the, the world as a whole, have been behind the eight ball since day one. And we're still behind the eight ball. Like we're chasing, the, the eight ball is way far ahead of us and we're chasing it as fast as we can, but we just can't quite get there. And, um, and that's going to continue to be the case. And that's going to continue to be the case with a lot of things besides controlling the virus itself. Um, and as things start to ramp up, um, we're going to see a whole lot other, a lot of other effects that are also going to be running so far ahead of us that we can't catch up. And so what I hope to do today is to sort of um, maybe pique your interest in what are some of the other things that need to be addressed early on, hopefully, um, things that we can begin to address now rather than waiting until we see the disaster at our doorstep and, um, and see how we can begin to mitigate those things. So um, I want to give you, first of all, just a little bit of background um, about me. First of all, um, raise your hand if you have ever had someone you love, a relative, um, somebody that you really care about, who is just one of those situations where one thing after another after another, and it's, it's, it's like, Lord, really? It's them again? Um, you know, they, cancer and car accidents and the children, they're on drugs. I mean, you just name it. Everything that bad that can happen happens to that person. Do you know anybody like that? Has anybody had an experience like that? Where you're just like, God, why? Why them again? Can it be somebody else this time? Um, that's what this feels like to me. Um, I have lived and worked in Sierra Leone since I was nine. That was a considerable number of years ago. Um, <laughs> And uh, Sierra Leone is, is kind of one of those, one of those situations. Um, Sierra Leone, for me, because it's where I grew up and where I have lived most of my life, is kind of like my second mother. Um, and you know, when you're little, don't you think your mother's perfect? Everybody thinks your mother's perfect, right? Um, she's beautiful. She's, she can't do anything wrong. Everything's wonderful about your mother. And you get a little bit older. Yeah, not so much. Um, Mom is not quite as perfect as I thought she was. Um, and then you get a little older yet and you realize, you know what, mom does have problems and uh, because so do all of us because the whole world has problems. And you sort of just incorporate the, the brokenness into who that person is and, and love them with it. And, and that's kind of what Sierra Leone has been for me. Growing up, I felt like Sierra Leone was a perfect, idyllic place to live and, and grow up. Um, when I got to be a little older, I was like, wow, this place sucks. This is really not such a great place at all. Um, and then, you know, then it came, it was sort of a watershed moment. Like, wow, this is really not that great. But it must have used to have been great because I remember when it was perfect. Um, and then at some point realizing, no, that brokenness has always been there. Um, and, and just sort of embracing that as a whole. 
So that's kind of what um, Sierra Leone has been for me. And I'm going to be focusing specifically on Sierra Leone, but I guarantee you, you can extrapolate this to any of the three countries, and it'll work out just fine. Um, so, so Sierra Leone has been that. It's, it's had problems of underdevelopment. Um, then there was the war. And then um, all throughout its history, corrupt leadership, uh, poor educational structures, I mean, just et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, and now Ebola. And it was just, it's, for me, it's been kind of one of those, like, really, God, again, here? Like, can it go somewhere else? Um, and it has been a really, really difficult um, journey. I put this picture up because I want you to know that there's more to Sierra Leone than Ebola. <laughs> and West Africa in general, like, that could be anywhere. Um, so um, I have long been, it was since Ebola started, I have long been saying that Ebola is not the problem in West Africa right now. Ebola is only revealing the problems of West Africa. Um, you know, people are, well, especially now, well, it's probably going to come here. No, it's not. Okay, so just take a breath. It's all fine. Um, why? Well, there's just no way. Okay, because when we compare Africa and America in terms of sort of the Ebola potential, it's not even like comparing apples and bananas. It's more like apples and rocks, right? So, like, you just, you can't really get a good comparison on the two. So, um, and it's hard for me to even explain that to people who haven't traveled much, you know, the ones that have just sort of been in wherever it is that they are for their whole life. I'm like, well, are you sure? Because I think, I think it's really possible. No, it's not. Trust me. Um, what, has, what is happening there can never happen here. It just isn't possible. Um, however, Ebola is also the revealer of our own brokenness in America right now. Um, I think Ebola has unveiled the eyes. You know, um, it's like the things that you think that you've covered up really well and um, you thought you had it all sort of packaged nice and pretty, Ebola has just ripped the covers off of that, whether that's in Africa and the underlying brokenness that's there or whether that's in America and our own underlying brokenness that's here. You know, actual quotes from recent days, keep those people out of here. Who are those people? One, and there's a whole bunch of them that live here already. And, um, you know, it's, it's been really, hmm, I don't have a good word for it. If I, if I found one, it probably wouldn't be good at a missions conference. Um, <laughs> it's been really disturbing um, to watch what America has done um, in recent days. Very disturbing. Um, I, I personally have, have been... Um, Affected by that in large and small degrees, um, my daughter, who's a junior in high school, um, was getting bullied at school because I had been in Sierra Leone in August, and um, she was getting bullied in school, and I was like, this is crazy. She wasn't even there, and I'm perfectly healthy. There were people keeping their kids home from school after I got back. I'm like, what is that? That's just nuts. Um, but anyway, so it really has just ripped the covers off of what we thought we had covered up nicely. You know, we thought we were doing really good on the whole, like, we're a melting pot, where, you know, racism is like last generation. No. Um, so what we're doing with Ebola is, is really unveiling a lot of really ugly truths um, on both sides of the ocean. And um, so just this is going to be a little interactive, okay, because um, I'm from one of those disciplines where we interact when we teach. So I'm going to ask for some um, Stuff from you guys. So what are some of, let's ignore America for right now. What are some of the underlying problems that Ebola has revealed in West Africa? Just shout them out. Corruption. Corruption. Lack of trust. Lack of trust. Fear. Poverty. Fear. 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 
medical care insufficiencies. Lack of education. Uh huh. Educational deficiencies. Problem with some traditions. Traditional practices. Sanitation. I think I heard. Okay, public health infrastructure. Who said something over here? I heard something. I'm sorry. Oh, yes, stigma and ostracism and things like that. Um, all of those, yes. Um, I'll just briefly run through those real quick again. Um, inadequate health care facilities, corruption, broken educational systems, including health education, infrastructural insufficiencies, lack of social support systems, poor hygiene and sanitation, and worldview issues, maybe most importantly of all. Um, I'm going to read to you right now um, a case study. This is a real story. I haven't changed her name. Um, and I want to introduce you to a friend of mine named Sally. Sally Matsu had not had an easy life. During the devastating and vile civil war that ravaged her country during her teens, rebels overran her village. Sally was not one of the fortunate ones who escaped their horrors. Rebel Axis severed both of her legs below the knees. By some miracle, Sally survived this atrocity, and though she eventually healed physically, the scars remained on both her legs and her heart. There were a couple of men in her life over the years, but they left her with little else besides children whom she struggled to raise alone. Sally was resi resilient, however. She found comfort in faith in Christ, and her passion was singing and songwriting. Her life's dream was to record a gospel album, Sally learned to tie-dye cloth to sell. She also learned to sew. She sold small items to earn food money for each day, and eventually she found a more secure relationship with a man who had also lost his leg to a rebel. Together, they had four more children. Sally is a feisty woman with a keen sense of humor and a flair for the dramatic, as you can see in the pictures. I don't have any of just Sally posing. I just have Sally in drama. Uh, she never went far in school, but she did want better for her children. An NGO gave her a home after the war and a settlement for amputees and war-wounded individuals, and there she found community and belonging. Ebola, however, hit their little settlement about three miles outside of a small city in the center of Sierra Leone when one of the women fell ill. She traveled to see relatives, and several days after she came home, she fell sick. People suspected it was Ebola, but public transportation had been banned, so there were very few options for transporting the sick woman to care, and there were no Ebola treatment centers within six hours anyway. The, woman in the, settlement did, the women in the settlement did their best to care for this woman, but she eventually died. Sally had just had a baby girl, so she didn't help care for the woman, but her mother, who lived with her, did. They dutifully washed the woman's body upon her death and gave her a fitting burial outside the village. A couple weeks later, Sally's mother and her 12-year-old daughter became ill. They managed to get them to the holding center in the city, but nothing was being done for patients in the holding center anyway. Sally also fell sick and joined them there a few days later, along with her 14-year-old daughter, Aminata. The two-week-old baby was left in the village in the care of a friend. Sally's mother soon died, followed by her daughter the next day. Sally by this time was so ill that they did not tell her of her daughter's death. Her husband, Jipo, came to the holding center where Sally was, but nothing was being done for her. She complained of a lot of pain and of being very thirsty. He tried to go out and buy her some medicines, but the nurses at the holding center wouldn't give them to her. An advocate um, from another NGO asked if they could provide IV fluids to give her to replace some of the fluid that she was losing in large amounts. They were told that all modalities had been put in place for patients at the holding center, and that was not necessary. But despite the claim of adequate modalities, Sally continued to worsen. Aminata, 14 years old, laid in a bed nearby watching her mother waste away. One week ago today, on 
October 31st, Sally lost the battle with the enemy Ebola and got to fulfill her life's dream by singing gospel music before the throne. Aminata, who was also weakening herself, called the village to tell her family and relatives that Sally had died, but no one could come to comfort her. She laid next to the body of her mother for 24 hours until it was finally taken away. Meanwhile, in the village, the family was put under quarantine. Our staff knew that the likelihood of the baby becoming positive was very high, given that she had been nursing when her mother got sick. We had to make a difficult decision of what to tell the family. We knew if we told them how likely it was that the baby was going to be infected, the chances were extremely high that they would take the baby and leave it in the bush to die. So we chose not to tell the family, but to encourage them to use gloves and disposable diapers for the baby, which we provided. Aminata was still lying at the holding center with very little care. We continued to provide her with phone credit so she could call when she needed to talk to someone, and one of our staff called and prayed with her every night. We provided her with a Bible to read and with water and snacks to eat and drink. She was terrified, grieving, and depressed. She had lost her grandmother, her sister, and her mother in the span of one week and now felt that she also was going to soon die. Jipo, Sally's husband, became so depressed that he climbed to the top of a mango tree and refused to come down despite many attempts to convince him and comfort him. His mother-in-law, daughter, and wife had just died. He had another daughter in the death ward, a seven-year-old son, and a three-week-old daughter to care for. When one of our staff visited the home at a safe distance, they discovered that the family could not eat, not only because they didn't have any food, but also because they couldn't start a fire. No one would lend them an axe to split the wood. A load of food and supplies, including coal, phone credit, diapers, and baby formula, was dropped off at the family's home to get them through the quarantine. On Wednesday, just two days ago, Aminata was declared an Ebola survivor. She has a long road ahead of her. The stigma that she will face upon release from the hospital will be unbearable. And yesterday, her father, Jipo, came down with a fever. Will she now lose her father as well? And that's her three-week-old baby sister as well. I want to just um, have you guys go ahead and, and draw out from that story, true story, um, happening right now. The story's not yet written um, completely. What are some of the underlying issues that are revealed in that story, some of the things that have, are contributing to the whole problem? Stigma. Okay, stigma. Isolation. Isolation. Resources. Lack of resources. Norms. I'm sorry? Norms, Norms and cultural <laughs> traditions. Okay, fatalistic worldview, and, and somebody lack said something else. Yeah, lack of medical treatment, yeah. Lack of A lack of knowledge and information. Lack of flexibility to let someone bring in water or something. Yeah, lack of flexibility in the system itself. Fear. Fear. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, yes. Um, she said pride um, in the healthcare systems and the government systems that wouldn't allow them to bring in other resources. So what can we do? Um, some of you, raise your hand if you're a doctor. Okay, put your hands down. Raise your hand if you're a nurse. Okay. Wow, that was a lot. Um, raise your hand if you're a student of one of those two professions. Okay. Um, now, Doctor, nurse, or not, um, many of you may not think that going and working in an Ebola treatment center is the thing that God is calling you to do right now, and that's fine. Um, God is not calling everyone to do that. 
I would, however, state that God is calling all of us to do something. So what can we do? First of all, Ebola requires out-of-the-box thinking. Um, ideal is out and creative is in. Um, there is not going to be any such thing as ideal in um, dealing with this situation in West Africa right now. It's also an all-hands-on-deck um, sort of situation. Um, it's sort of the, you know, Moses standing in front of the God and, and him saying, what's in your hand? You know, whatever that is, that's what you're going to use. A stick? That works. Um, so it's really us all looking at what are our gifts, what are our resources, what are our skills, what are our capacities, and using those right now in this crisis because this is all of our crisis. Um, it's affecting all of us. Isn't it affecting you in some way? I mean, all of us at different levels. But raise your hand if you, like, you know, really bullets, like, not really affecting you. Raise your hand if it's not affecting you. It's not really. Okay, see? So there's not too many hands on that. Um, there is an overwhelming need for clinical care on multiple levels. Um, there's a need for care centers. There's a need for lab facilities for quick diagnosis. This is one of the really big issues is not being able to get a lab test. Sally's lab test came back the day after she had died. She'd been in the holding center for seven days. Um, her daughters came in that same day, so at least she was able to find out that she was Ebola positive, but she had also been in the holding center for seven days when she got her test back. That's, that's ridiculous. Um, you, can't, you can't diagnose and treat a, a virus that, like this with a seven-day um, you know, lead time on trying to get those results back. So there's, there's definitely a need for that. There's also um, a big need for immediate and effective contact tracing. Those are really three things. To control the virus itself, those are the three components that really have to be in place is um, good care and adequate care um, and the um, testing, lab testing and contact tracing. Right now in the entire region, three countries, there are 1,100 Ebola treatment beds for the entire region. There are currently over 4,500 active cases of Ebola. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but that's not too hard. Um, so there's, there's a, a obviously a huge need for clinical care on multiple levels. Um, there's also a need for funeral care and grief care. Uh, that's a big one because, you know, of, of all the transmissions, almost all are either people caring for sick people or people burying dead people. Like, those are really almost all of the transmissions, and then there are a few extraneous other random ones. Um, so if people could get buried properly, but the problem is, is that the traditions, um, nobody's thinking out of the box on that, so the traditions are not being looked at and tried to try to tie those in to what people are already needing and expecting in those situations. And so um, that's a really big one, too. If people had a way to get closure um, appropriately, I think it would stem the tide of some of these burial transmissions that we're seeing. So there's a lot of, of need for clinical types of uh, situations, but everything is broken. Um, I worked in Sierra Leone during the war, and this has been deja vu for me. Um, for anybody, I think, that's been in that region this long, it's deja vu. It's like, and in Sierra Leone, they're calling it the war part two. Um, they're also saying that uh, this is worse than the war. And if you lived through that war, that's hard to imagine, but it really is true. Like having now done this twice, I would say it's, it's true. Um, it's different, uh, but there's just something about it that's so insidious and so, um, I don't know, terrifying, I think, um, that it really is much, um, it's much different, but it's also very much the same as the war. Now, um, one of the biggest byproducts of Ebola worldwide has been fear. Um, 
This is not my original. Uh, this is Zig Ziglar has two definitions for fear. One of them is forget everything and run. This is the one most of us are operating in right now um, on both sides of the water. Forget everything and run. That's, that's the first reaction to fear. The second one is face everything and rise. Um, that's what I would call us to, that that's what, in, in the midst of fear, so it's not that fear doesn't exist, it's that we have to redefine it. Instead of being fearful and turning tail and running, we have got to be fearful and make that cause us to rise up and fight. Um, you know, it's the whole flight or fight reaction. Um, let's not flee, let's fight. And, um, and as we fight, we need to do that really holistically like we have so many things that we need to do in order to fight this virus and everybody is needed um in looking at the underlying factors that have created ebola you know if you're going to deal with something well what do you have to really deal with Right, root causes. We've got to deal with the root causes, right? And so really, since we've just identified that the virus is not the root cause, the virus is a revealer of root causes that have already been there, and we've already called those out, right? So, so then let's turn that around. If we're going to deal with those root causes, um, this is going to be a little harder. The first one was easier. Um, what are some ideas? Just throw out a couple of ideas. What are some things that we can do from a holistic standpoint, not just as healthcare providers, but as, as human beings, as part of this global world that we live in? What are some things that we need to do um, about these multiple layers of problems that have been unveiled by Ebola? Yeah, that's a really good point that we have to start with ourselves. Um, and it, you know what? I'll just tell you, like, I know a lot about Ebola. I don't know if there's people that have read more about Ebola in the last few months than I have, like, because I read a lot anyway, so I just read and read and read. Um, and it's so easy. Like, I know a lot of facts, but it's so easy to get sucked into that fear vortex, isn't it? Like, just really easy. And all of a sudden, you forget what you know. Like, all the facts go flying out the window. And so let alone for people that have a little bit less understanding. So it's really important for us to educate ourselves deeply and then root ourselves in those truths. And somebody else was saying something over here. Mm -hmm. That's true. And um, some of that's a little bit hard to get. It's certainly going to be easier the next time Ebola shows up in the world. Um, but on this, on this particular outbreak, it's not as easy to get the type of empirical data that we might want um, or wish we had. Uh, for example, one, um, I was just reading an article yesterday that somebody has been asking for a long time now for um, gender diversified data on cases and transmission and deaths of Ebola trying to, because there's, there's um, sort of anecdotal data that this is far, it, it's affecting women far more than it is men um, in these countries up to probably 70% of the cases being female. Um, but there's no actual data to back that up in terms of, you know, actual, what you could say is empirical scientific data. Um, there's sort of, you can kind of see that, but you can't prove it. Yeah. Anybody? Um, on education, Yes. So it seems like there's a lot of misunderstanding. Yes. Um, when Ebola first 
broke in our area of Sierra Leone where we work. Um, I was on vacation. It didn't last very long. Um, and one of the things that immediately became evident to me because, um, because of how long I've lived in Sierra Leone and because um, sort of my special, specialty niche is community edu- health education and particularly with low literacy populations, um, as I looked at the information that was being produced by the CDC, I thought, that is not going to work. Um, it was all true. It wasn't wrong. It was all true, but it wasn't going to work. It was all from a very Western medical model. Um, just typical disease transmission, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, that is not what people, well, first of all, that's not what they care about. And second of all, that's not what they believe. So you can't just go around posting those posters up and expecting that to do the job on education. So immediately, my vacation sort of got stuck on hold. And um, we went to work trying to develop some materials that would address that from a whole different standpoint. You can pick some of those up on this table here before you leave if you want. And they're all on our website as well. Um, but, but basically, you know, one, looking at story, um, looking at things that could be um, cues and, and visual factors for people from a low literacy level. Um, people that are illiterate are, are also, and particularly those who have never gone to school, are also visually illiterate. So images that we take for granted, things, symbols, things like that, that we think make perfect sense, doesn't compute. So um, looking at even how the visual images that we put out to people um, are going to be perceived by them. So a lot of those types of things, and then using story, which is very, very um, easily contextualized, and addressing the, the underlying deeper worldview issues that people were really wrestling with. Um, because you could just talk to the days long um, about body fluids and bats and whatever, and, um, and honestly, like, I, I can't tell you how many Sierra Leoneans said to me, you know, we don't eat bats. It's those other people that eat bats. So um, it, was, it was not us. We did not get this from bats. Um, so I don't know why they keep telling us not to eat bats, because we don't like, like bats anyway. So um, there's, you know, that, and that was a big thing, don't eat bats. Um, and everybody's like, well, good, I'm good on that, because I don't eat bats, so it's all good. Um, so looking at some of those underlying issues, you're, you're absolutely correct. Right, right, yeah. Yes. That's the one, right. That way because they trust them. So we can't expect just to go in with all of our knowledge and, and expect that they'll believe us. They won't hear us because they don't trust us. Right. Yeah, trust is a really, is a big issue, establishing trust. Yes. Right. Right. And, you know, in, in, this, in this particular outbreak, one of the issues was that um, Ebola is not actually a disease. It's actually something that white people are doing to Africans by putting them in these scary centers, giving them this Ebola thing, which kills you, and then taking your organs, right? So, um, so then if other white people or whoever, right, come in and go, well, here's what you need to know. Oh, well, yeah, we know what you're doing over there. So... Um, now we know why you're telling us that, because you want to get us in there too, right? So the, the thought process behind that is not going to lead to good results, for sure. 
Other things? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you get a good answer on that, you could probably get a workshop here and people would show up. <laughs> Other thoughts on how to address some of these underlying issues? Those are, that's a good question. I'm not dismissing the question as irrelevant. It's just I'm not sure that there's a good answer. Right, right. You can get sort of lip service to th what you're saying, and then when you leave it, it just kind of falls falls flat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On-site disinfection capability where they're not relying on disinfectant from the outside, that they could make it electrolytically from salts um, locally. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that the combating the underlying diseases of poverty that uh, mm -hmm. would otherwise be overwhelming the yeah. medical system. And um, speaking of underlying diseases, so this was when I was there in um, August and September, so we were focusing a lot on education, uh, prevention education particularly, but um, it was fascinating to me because the, the government and everybody uh, was all about rinse your hands and chlorine. Um, um, chlorine everywhere. The place smelled like a pool. Um, so, and it was everywhere. I mean, go to the phone store, go to the grocery store, you name it. Wherever you go, you got chlorine to wash your hands with. Um, I said to one guy as I was going into the phone store, he's like, stop, you gotta, you gotta stop right here. I gotta take your temperature and you gotta wash your hands. And I said, well, I have hand sanitizer, can I do that instead? And he goes, yes. I said, okay, so I pulled my hand sanitizer out, I put it on, and I said, now watch. Because I just cleaned my hands, and now I'm going to touch your dirty doorknob and go inside the, the, the store. And he just laughed. And I said, so we're not really solving the problem, just, just saying. And, uh, and he goes, and so I went to go inside. He goes, hold on, I have to take your temperature. I said, okay, there was two of us. So um, he shot me, and I was 36. It's all in centigrade, right? Shot my friend. She was 34. And he goes, you're fine. Go on in. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm fine. She's dead. <laughs> and he goes, what are you talking about? I'm like, she's dead. You just told her her temperature is 34. She's dead. She is not fine. Now you're telling her she can go inside the, the store. And he just laughed, like that laugh, like I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'll just laugh. So I'm like, see, this is this is a problem. Like you're taking my temperature, but you don't really know what you're looking for. And, and she's she's now clinically dead, and you're saying she's fine. This is not good. And uh, so anyway, just kind of like underlying some of those, like, okay, so now we're taking everybody's temperature, but we don't even know why or what we're doing with that. 
the whole chlorine thing, um, people started refusing because they were their hands were splitting. Well, good. Now you just have skin integrity issues, right, which is a problem anyway. Um, so we've got this whole skin integrity issue. Soap and water disappeared, right? Like, I don't know where so Well, it never had existed, so that was part of it. But um, So I said, <laughs> I said to a doctor, um, a, a medical doctor, um, so they have the ABC rule, right, in Africa, avoid body contact, so you're not allowed to touch anybody. Nobody's allowed to touch anybody. I was finding this rule to be rather um, disconcerting when I was there because, one, it had the whole culture had completely changed. And I was like, wow, I had been there a month before. I was like, wow, in one month, this is incredible, like the amount of, of transformational change at a root level that has taken place. And I was like, but, I'm, but like, really, like, why are we doing this? Like, it, are we thinking about what's behind this? And so there was this doctor, and I just got off the plane, and, um, and I was meeting him for the first time, and I reached out my hand out of habit, and he goes, whoa, whoa, we don't do that anymore. I'm like, but why don't we? And he goes, well, because. And I said, but, but why? And he goes, well, because we're going to pass sickness to each other. I'm like, why are you sick? He goes, no. And I said, well, I'm not either. And so what are we passing? And he, and he just laughed again, that laugh like, okay, whatever. And I said, well, you know, what I'm wondering is, why don't we just start teaching people to wash their hands with soap and water, like a lot, like just, you know, frequently. And he goes, that will never work here. I said, well, why not? And he goes, because you cannot teach a whole country something that deep in such a short period of time as we need to do in order to kill this virus. I said, are you kidding me right now? I left a month ago, and people were, like, all up in each other's business all the time. Like, there's no bubbles in Sierra Leone, right? you got no personal space. And now, down to a mentally disabled man who's a friend of mine, when, who I thought, well, he's not going to know about the ABC rule, right? So I didn't want to offend him or, like, hurt him. And so I went ahead to reach out my hand, and he went like this. And I was like, down to the mentally disabled who have not very much comprehension, we have changed an entire culture. Couldn't we have put our efforts into, like, just putting soap and water everywhere? We got chlorine buckets all over the place. And, and how sustainable is that? One, you're ruining your hands, and two, chlorine runs out. Um, and so, you know, then you've got a problem. But soap and water, that, that could solve all, a lot of health problems, not just Ebola. But, no, we can't, we can't change somebody's culture that quickly. I'm like, we just did, a month. The whole culture has changed. Like, we could have put our efforts into soap and water and eliminated a whole bunch of diseases. Yeah, um, in Freetown, they have running water. In Kono District and other places, they don't. Yeah, you're right. In, in McKinney, where I work, too, they don't. But you know what they do have now? Everywhere? Buckets with taps on them. Right. Everywhere. They're everywhere. I was shocked. I'm like, where did all these buckets come from? Yeah. Guinea, actually, is where they came from. Yes. On the front lines of fighting Ebola. That's one thing. And another thing, too, is what we're doing is um, we, we have a group of people that uh, all have sort of ministries in Sierra Leone. And we got together uh, like a, um, it's almost like a food drive. Uh -huh. so what's happening is, you know, a lot of the families of the patients are under um, armed guard in their homes. Right. So they can't go out to work, they can't go out to socialize. They're starving. They're, you know, yeah. They can't make any money, so people are bringing them food. And yes. There, you know, there's those kind of things, too. Right. Yes. Um, did anybody else have something that they wanted to say before I go on? Yeah. Well, I think also, too, if we need to put this in its real, true perspective because, you know, everybody's so angry with the news and the media all the time that I work at public hospitals, but um, if you really look at it from a real point of view, Ebola, the virus 
virus itself, I mean, it's not like this. It is a bad virus, I'm not mm -hmm. saying that, but it's not like it's one of those viruses that cannot easily be contained. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at it, um, the number of people that were even killed in Liberia versus the population. Right. It's not one of those type of viruses that just spread out of control. Right, wipes out an entire country. Right. It's, it's like minor things that can be done to contain, like even with your story, you know, maybe the sister and the other, um, the husband or whatever, maybe they would have to contract the virus if you just simply <laughs> not be afraid to separate them because <laughs> in its early stage, right. if you treat it properly in its early stage, your immune system can actually right. attack people. Right. People can come resistant to it. Right. If everybody panics because they're so afraid because of the media and because of what's going on and how, how we look at it, we are preventing the own immune system to... You know, right. to take effect like it should. This yes. is not uh, a virus that the immune system cannot beat. Mm -hmm. We just have to have the supportive treatment available right. to those in their early stages in order for this body to be able to, to you know, respond to it. And mm -hmm. at the time, these people can become resistant. Right. And the resistance then can be transfused like it was here in the U.S. Right. to those who are, you know. But we're so panicking because, oh, somebody has a virus, and oh, we got to isolate them. Oh, right. We can't treat Shut them off. We yep. can't do this. And then... Which is what we're trying to do right now to the region. But do people understand that influenza kills people much faster? And a lot more. Yeah, exactly. It's so more um, contagious and it right. spreads so much faster and it's so much more difficult to contain. Yes. And that Ebola is just simply um, out of control simply because of, like you said, all the brokenness the and everything and yeah. the lack of, you know, the fear, mm -hmm. the panic and all that when it can simply be easily contained because if you look at the percentage of people that are affected versus the population, right. it's very, very minute. Right. So therefore that clearly shows you that that virus in itself can be equally contained. So we just need education on that end as well. Right. Because a lot of these people who are dying don't have to die if we can separate them early and treat and, them early. Right, and support them, yes. Mm -hmm. um, over here, was there something? Yeah. You know, there will also be a post-Ebola time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's kind of one of the scariest things to me. And I work mm -hmm. in a, uh, I'm a neighbor of Ebola mm -hmm. in my country, and this uh, idea of it coming there is, yeah. you know, like children are going to be Right. And um, women can't get prenatal care and right. all this Ebola, not that that response isn't needed now, but what is going to happen to those countries in the long term of just now total care infrastructure medically right. is, is gone. And that's that's really what I wanted to touch on with this next slide is um, some of those other secondary effects that need to be mitigated now. Um, that we need to start thinking forward. We can't wait to see them. We have to know that they're coming. Like you said, we, we, can, we can predict this. We've seen disasters before. Um, we know what this looks like, and, and we need to start thinking forward. And those who are in um, organizations or in um, skill sets that are not necessarily clinical in nature, or maybe they are, but that's not what they want to really put their energies, um, can participate in some of these other things. Um, there are... Already between, and, you know, st stats are really useless in this situation, in my opinion. But, um, I mean, you can throw them out, but I don't think they mean anything. Um, but there are already probably over 6,000 orphans from Ebola in our country alone. So um, this, is, this is like 1980 AIDS all over again because these orphans are stigmatized um, and no one wants them. And so what are we going to do with these kids when this is all over. And, you know, the, the hard part of this particular type of situation is that the kids that are orphaned, like Aminata and her brother and her three-week-old sister, um, when their parent dies of Ebola, they're put in a 21-day quarantine. So on the front, if they don't have another parent in that house with them, on the front end, they're, they're completely alone. 
and isolated. They don't have somebody caring for them. They don't have somebody feeding them. They got nothing. So not only is there sort of that immediate grief, and often the parent has died in the home, um, and it's not a pretty death to die of Ebola. So they've probably already witnessed a, a very ugly death of their parents, and now they're stuck in that same home, which has now been sprayed from top to bottom with chlorine, and all of their parents' belongings have been removed and incinerated. So there's loss upon loss upon loss, and then just trying to grieve through that all alone um, as a child. Like, what is that, what is that doing, and what, what is the long-term effects of that? So you've got orphan care issues um, that need to be addressed. You've got a huge educational gap. Schools shut down before the end of the last school year. They will not reopen this school year. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, I think everybody hopes so, but it's not going to happen. So we've got an entire year of educational gap. If you have children, like you know over the summer how much is lost in what they remember. Imagine a whole entire year, you know. So you've got educational gaps. Um, not only do you have educational gaps on the long term, but right now you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who are sitting at home bored to tears because they have no school. They, all sports have been banned. All entertainment centers have been closed. They're not allowed to play with their friends next door because who knows who's got Ebola and who doesn't. So they've, they've been isolated. And um, so then you've got, you've got exploitation issues that are coming into play um, as children are home with adults who are also home because all their jobs have been lost. So you've got a lot of that kind of thing going on. You've got child labor issues because now parents are trying to keep their kids busy, so now they're going to work them to death. Um, so you've got all kinds of other issues um, in this whole educational gap situation that need to be addressed. Um, you've got emotional care issues. Um, there's grief. There's lots of losses. But then also entire societies have changed irreparably, I think. Um, and, and so what does that look like? You know, and they've already done this once before. They've had this whole huge societal change. And I watched as the fabric of a nation changed through the war and people became different. Um, and, then, and I'm watching that same thing happen again, you know, where people are afraid of each other and they're not even sick. Like they're just afraid all the time. And then just for, you know, those of you in, in sort of the medical field, just what are the cortisol levels of these people under this kind of stress all the time? You know, I have no idea, but they've got to be like through the roof. So lots of emotional care issues. Um, you've got the whole issue of addressing and recreating traditional practices. If we could recreate those, incorporating some of the past and some of the new, that would be better. Instead of just like, you can't do that anymore. Well, nobody's going to buy that. I wouldn't buy that. Would you buy that? Um, so you've got an issue of people saying, you can't bury your person anymore. In fact, I was leading a, a seminar on a biblical response to Ebola in Sierra Leone for pastors and church leaders, and one of the pastors said, you know, the government has said that we can't pray for people with Ebola. I'm like, they did? He goes, yeah, it's, it's a law. It's in, the, it's in the new laws, the Ebola laws. And there's a document. It's an Ebola docu laws document. It has the punishments and everything. And I said, well, could I have that document? I just want to look at it. So they continued with the session, and um, I read through the whole document. It wasn't in there. All the pastors in the room believed him, though. They're like, yeah, yeah, we can't pray for people with Ebola anymore. So after they got to a breaking point in the session, I said, well, well first of all, it doesn't say in here that you can't pray for people with Ebola. But let me pose the question to you, what if it did? What if that was true? Then what? Who do you obey? The Lord, who says, pray for the sick? Or the government that says, you can't pray for people with Ebola? Like, that's, that's the choice that you're looking at, you as pastors, church leaders, ministry leaders, if that really is the case. Now, in this case, it's not the case. It doesn't say that. And so somehow that rumor got started, and people were like, well, we can't pray for the sick anymore. Um, 
And, and why, why swallow that? You know what I mean? Like, even if it was true, that should be responded to with a lot of questions and some fighting. You know, like, well, I'm sorry, I'm still gonna, I might not go lay hands on people in the middle of an, if they're actively, uh, have Ebola, but I can certainly pray for them. You can't stop me from praying. Um, and so just, you know, helping people kind of to wrestle through some of those issues. Um, and rethink them, you know, not throw away, but rethink how we do things. Um, economic collapse, you know, right now the economy um, of these countries has almost completely collapsed. Um, thousands and thousands of jobs have been lost, what few jobs there were to start with. Um, I mean, we were talking about employment, unemployment rates in these countries of 70 to 80%, right? And so now lots and lots of those jobs have, lost, have been lost as well. So there's going to be a, a huge need for some economic development and business um, types of development uh, once this thing starts to settle down. Spiritual care. Um, you know what the worst thing is, like, as these people are laying in these holding centers and dying? You know what the population of Christians is in these countries? Really small. So most of these people that are dying are going, dying and going to hell. And this is where our staff has really been um, burdened. Uh, we work with women with disabilities, and um, most of our women are not Christians. Uh, we do have a few that, that have come to Christ over the years, um, but most of them are not Christians. And our program manager said um, in an interview uh, the other day um, when she was asked, what's their biggest challenge? What is the thing that's really um, the hardest for you right now? And she said, you know, Ebola is a war with invisible arrows, and you never know where the arrow is going to strike next. But in our situation, wherever that arrow strikes, most likely that person doesn't know Christ and they're going to die and go to hell. And that's the biggest challenge that we have. And, um, and so spiritual care issues are really um, a big deal. And, you know, when people are faced with the possibility, the very real possibility of death, their hearts are a lot softer um, than they would be otherwise. So this is, this is like when it says the harvest is ripe, you know, that the fields are ripe to harvest, I think that's now. But what are we doing? We're running away, not toward. Um, the isolation and reintegration issues, the stigma that was already mentioned, um, those are issues that are going to take a long time to address. Uh, we've been here, done that before, you know, with AIDS, and it, it took a long time, you know, to kind of get to a place where AIDS people were incorporated back into their communities, um, and it's going to it's going to be that again. So, um, you know, you've got a lot of issues that all need to be approached, and we need to do that on the front end, not wait until we're way behind the game again on some of these other secondary effects that need to be addressed. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, those still aren't my thing, whatever. Like, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do. Well, have I got a job for you? You can give money to those who do. Um, because if you don't have any of those gifts, you can give to those that do. And, and, that's, and that's, not, that's not nothing. That's not a cop-out. Well, it might be a cop-out. But, um, but that's between you and God. But, but really, it's still necessary. And um, don't, don't think, I mean, first of all, there's like, I, don't, I can't even count the billions of dollars that have been poured into those countries so far through governments of all sorts. I'm not sure where it all is. Nobody is. But what I would say is find a ministry, an organization that's on the ground with boots on the ground that you trust that's actually doing something to mitigate those secondary effects and give to them, whether that's in food relief, because that's a huge issue, food insecurity. The, um, the World Food Program has predicted that by March, that entire country is going to be under a severe famine because the entire agricultural cycle has been disrupted. So, Well, by March it will have been. So we've already gone through about three-fourths of an agricultural cycle, and now they're eating their seed crop. 
So um, the, the whole agricultural cycle is being disrupted. Importations have stopped um, in a lot of cases, or they have vastly slowed down. And these three countries are all, all importation food countries. They don't grow their own food. Um, they could, but they don't. And, um, and now they can't because they've eaten their seed. So now we've got a, a famine type of situation coming up early next year that's going to take a lot of, of um, work to mitigate as well. And above all, uh, we need to pray. And I just would like to point out that the woman against the wall by the curtain is Sally that we talked about earlier. So we need to pray. And we need to pray diligently. Um, we recently did, uh, went through a 21 days of prayer campaign for Ebola from um, October 11th to the 31st. And, um, and I recently wrote a blog of just some reflections on that time. I, I stopped praying after a while. I got kind of mad, um, you know, where you're just like, Okay, God, I've been praying about this for a long time now, and it just keeps getting worse. So I'm not sure I'm going to keep praying about this anymore. And that was kind of where I got to at some point during that 21 days. And um, eventually, you know, the Lord, um, you know, as he does, he brings you back around. But um, the verse that, that kind of rescued my heart out of that cold place was um, from Job 13:15. You know, um, You know the verse. It's a very famous suffering verse. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Did you know that's only half the verse? It doesn't even stop there. There's no period. There's like, it keeps going. Um, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, and I will argue my ways to his face. And that was what saved me in that, in that time. Because you know what it is? It's, it's that you do trust him, that he is hope, that you can argue to his face. Because only with people that you trust very, very deeply can you really have that kind of argument and know that it's okay, that it's safe. And so um, that was really where I got to in the midst of that 21 day days of prayer, um, feeling like, God, you're not not listening. And this is kind of enough on these countries. You know, they've had a lot. Um, And it was in arguing, um, not in climbing up and giving them the cold shoulder, but in arguing that that really that I was able to come back around and go, okay, I will continue to press on and pray. Um, So. I would encourage you to um, find a strategy that would um, force you to pray um, diligently through this situation. We have like 10 minutes um, for some questions, if you have any. Yeah. Um, in the long run, an Ebola vaccine would be helpful. My concern is that this crisis will pass. Mm-hmm. And since Ebola did not is not going to land on our shores, affect us and a lot of the other uh, um, countries that might be doing the R&D on this, is it then just going, and it's not going to be profitable, is it just going to disappear again under the radar? Um, she's asking about the vac- a, vac- a vaccine for Ebola, that um, because there's a lot of work being done right now, but if this virus, this particular epidemic passes, then is it all just going to kind of go back to not a high on the priority list, which is possible. Um, I think that this has been a wake-up call um, for a lot of people and organizations, so I'm not sure that that'll, that it'll completely go away. But um, I think, too, that um, there's a huge – there are issues in that. I just read a Facebook post yesterday. It made me so mad, um, posted by someone in the diaspora that said, um, the vaccine is almost ready. My fellow Africans – when they come around telling you to get vaccinated, don't listen to them. They're the ones that created this virus, so don't let them give it to you in a, in a syringe. Yeah. 
I was like, well, great, that's good. So, I mean, there's those kinds of sentiments also that are going to make it really difficult um, for a vaccination program to be effective as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Fisher's session, last breakout session on Ebola, uh, at the very end it came up about oral rehydration solution and the, um, surprisingly, the impact that that can have. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen that? Yeah, the, he's asking about oral rehydration um, in Ebola therapy. And just like um, this lady was saying about the supportive care, that's really the key. Now, one of the problems with people with Ebola, depending on their symptoms, right, because everybody kind of manifests a little bit differently, but um, with the people that actually get the extreme vomiting and diarrhea with Ebola, oral rehydration will not be successful. They just can't get enough in. They're losing like liters a day in fluid. And so they can't get enough in orally to be able to end their vomiting. So it's not going to stick. Um, so it, with people that have more mild, like that was Aminata's salvation, I think, because we just kept bringing in water packets to her and having her continue to rehydrate. They weren't really doing anything for her in the center um, like they did nothing for her mother. But so oral rehydration can be um, one of the supportive things. But if they're really in that real severe vomiting and diarrhea um, type of manifestation, it's not going to be sufficient. It's going to have to be IV. And, um, and so that's why, you know, the, the care centers are really necessary for that supportive care. Um, but that is something that, that is on the front end, especially like she was saying, if you can start really early before the symptoms really, you know, get real bad, um, it, could, it could be one of the sort of saving factors. Yeah. Yes, we do. Um, there's a lesson on our website. Our, I'm sorry, I didn't put it on the slides, but our website is womenofhopeinternational.org. And then if you go to Ebola resources, there's um, several lessons. So this picture booklet that was developed along with the health lesson that goes with it. And then there's one called A Biblical Response to Ebola. And I have watched that play out in church leader um, seminars in Sierra Leone. And it was very well received. It's really a Bible study. Um, looking at what is the role of the body of Christ in a crisis like this and in a healthcare uh, crisis particularly. Uh uh-huh. women of hope international.org. In the back. Just want to thank you Kim for making the literature available for the broader shade network in West Africa. Med distribution is very effective among acquiring public health officials as well getting out a little bit further reach. I just want to give you a plug. I mean, if we focus on love and mercy rather than fear with judgment, this can be overcome. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, these resources, actually, when we threw them up on the website, and we got them on the Che website as well as ours, and no pun intended, but they went viral. Like, I started getting emails from all over the world about using these, and they've got been, now been translated into dozens of languages around the world and are being used in, in probably over 15 countries. So, um, And they are very effective in the West African setting. So, yeah. What's the starting point for for rebuilding? You know, here's here's what I think. Um, because really, like, if you look at that 
slide that all the, you know, if you look at the big picture, um, really, don't you just want to go, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to go do something else. Um, I'm going to work on uh, microfinance. I don't know. Um, so there's, that's a really, really big question. For me, what I've had to do is to put a little bit of blinders on. Like, I know the big picture. It's in there. It's, I'm under that umbrella all the time, but I've got to focus in on uh, where can I have an impact? Where can I make an, an, a difference? And that's on 350 women who have disabilities who are very vulnerable in this particular situation and, um, and their families, which is, you know, upwards of a couple thousand people. But um, focus in on, on that population because that's who God has put in front of me and that's who I'm responsible to really try to impact. And that's what I would encourage you is, is pray and ask God, like, of this massive issue, what one thing can I do? What, and then just don't, don't, don't poo-poo that. That's a good thing. Whatever God asks you to do, do that and do it faithfully and do it with all your heart because that's what he's asked you to do. He wants you to be faithful in small things. So it might look small in that grand scheme of like immense brokenness, but whatever that one thing is. And then I think that this is going to be a very telling situation as we get as we eventually go into the post-Ebola era, whenever that is, um, which I think is down the road quite a ways. But whenever that is, um, I think this is going to be a very telling issue because um, – I think things that people thought they had done well, they're going to go, oh, maybe, maybe not. That didn't work so well. Because then when uh, the minute a crisis fell on top of that thing, it collapsed. So I think it's going to have people rethinking how they're doing what they're doing in these countries where the brokenness is so extreme and so multifaceted. Um, but I think that the, really the only thing I can tell you to do is um, pray and ask God, what is the one small thing that I can do um, in this crisis? And then just do that faithfully. Um, and if everybody in this room even did that one small thing, you know what I mean? Like that's start multiplying it like that. And then you get your churches involved in doing that one thing, um, whether that's orphan care or food relief. Um, you know, we're doing food relief for these 350 women. Um, they're getting a food package every week. It costs us $20 um, to give them a food package for the week for their family. Our, our organization is not resourced to do that for very long. Um, that's not in, that wasn't in our strategic plan um, for this year. So, um, you know, there are organizations out there that you could really impact probably largely. And with that, that's not a huge amount of money. You know, people can do that and um, provide a feed package for a woman and her family for a week. And that's not a real difficult thing to do. Um, we're looking at orphan care issues next because we've got now a number of orphans in our program, just in our program alone, um, that we need to address. So, you know, just looking at those, just what's my, what is God putting right before me that he's asking me to address? Other questions? Who? Oh, over there. Well, yes. I had a question on uh, the most effective approach to hand hygiene in terms of infection prevention, whether soap and water versus the alcohol, alcohol gel or the chlorine spray. I had never really thought about the chlorine spray, but is that um, better than the other two? No, soap and water is the best. Um, number one, it's sustainable, <laughs> and number two, it's um, not as hard on your hands. Um, it's also available everywhere. Uh, chlorine really like sold out fast in these countries. It was like you couldn't get it anymore um, in any form. So, you know, those some of those, th- plus it's real harsh on your hands. And, and then if you end up with skin integrity issues as a result of that, you know, and, and really, I know, this is my thing about like hand sanitizers and the chlorine, because we weren't washing your hands. You're just sort of throwing chlorine over them. They still could be very dirty, right? Um, I don't know, like that's what I think about. If you go to the bathroom and you come out and you just kind of hand sanitize your hands, like now you have clean germs on your hands, but they're not gone, you know. So I think gone is better. Just wash them um, and just get rid of it. 
So I think soap and water is the best. And really, it's it's the thing that's going to like impact everything. Like the, you know, the, a lot of issues um, in these countries could be negated with just lots of soap and water um, hand washing practices. So I don't know which time zone we're going to go by. One says we're done, and one says we have a couple more minutes. So um, if you have any other burning question on this side of the room, you still have a few, still have a few uh, minutes. Um, we'll be around. Just yeah, go ahead. No, back there. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes, it is, and it is now, and it, it kills way more than Ebola does every year. Yeah. Every year it kills more than Ebola has so far in all three countries. So, yeah, that's also a big deal. Thank you. Yeah.